Welcome to Face the Jury. Today, I'll finish my discussion of the trial process and the importance of juries. I believe the combination of jury selection and opening statement is the most important part of a jury trial. The jury has learned a little bit about the case and jury selection just from the nature of the questions you're asking. But opening statement is the first opportunity the jury has to really hear the story of the case presented in a coherent way. And the jury is judging that story and they're judging the lawyer who's delivering that story. You know, is this somebody that, you know, is like those lawyers we see on TV, fast talking, slick, tricky, or is this person worthy of belief? Is this person credible? Or is there a question mark about that? Um, Maybe I don't know about this lawyer yet. Let's just wait and see how this thing develops. So then you go into opening statement. Opening statement is a topic that there are books written about, um, how to present opening, there are seminars. This has been a topic for, well, since the founding of our country, when John Adams was giving an opening statement in defense of the British who were being prosecuted for the so-called Boston Massacre. John Adams was standing in a courtroom, facing a jury, delivering an opening statement. This has been a, a cornerstone of our American experience since the beginning of our founding. And it's no different in some respects today when you face a jury. You feel the weight of that moment. You feel the responsibility for your client. And you also feel the preparation and the muscle memory that you've developed getting to that point in time. And when I present opening statements, I use and rely a lot upon visual anchors. I use boards to show certain medical concepts. I use a lot of demonstrative evidence, physical exhibits, things to represent the heart or a blood clot or a piece of the anatomy. So I tried to tell the story of the case to the jury in a simple, clear way that will be memorable and interesting. It sounds a lot easier to say those things on a podcast than to actually do them in a courtroom. And it takes a lot of preparation. It takes a lot of humility. Uh, you may think you've prepared the perfect opening statement that's going to win the case and immediately, but then you practice that in front of mock juries or or groups of friends before you show up at trial and they tell you, you know, that doesn't make sense or I'm not buying it or it seems a little much or whatever the criticism might be. And we use a lot of focus groups for that purpose to try to calibrate and adjust to refine our opening to make it connect so it has maximum impact. But essentially, the opening statement is an opportunity to tell the jury What happened in this case, what the, in in medical terms, we call it the standard of care that was ultimately violated by the doctors. What's the standard of care? What's the story of the case? And then we introduce the themes of the case. Is this a case, for example, about a doctor not knowing his or her limitations, a doctor doing something that they weren't trained to do? Is it a case about a doctor who doesn't think he needs to listen to nurses because he doesn't value their opinions. So is it a case about arrogance or pride? Is it a case about a doctor who 
is a partner in a highly lucrative surgical practice where they want to see and operate on many, many, many patients to maximize profits? Is it a doctor that puts profits over patients? So these are examples of some of the themes that we will introduce in our opening statement, which brings us back to the moral core of the story that we had spent the energy in discovering you know, many months or maybe even a, a year before we show up at trial. But it's important not to give too much away in opening. Um, like any good dramatic story, you want to leave some questions out there for the jury that will be answered later. And it's a balance on how much to do that. And in a medical case, there's certain elements that must be communicated in opening statement because they're going to be the prism for the jury to understand the evidence that's going to come in through witnesses and documents. So if a case involves uh, a misdiagnosed stroke, for example, you may know a stroke is a clot that gets in blood vessel in the brain and leads to brain tissue death. That's one type of a stroke. So you can't get up in front of a jury and call witnesses and start talking about stroke unless the jury understands some basic anatomy, such as the brain, blood vessels in the brain, how a clot gets to the brain. You can explain this with words and you can teach words such as ischemia or trans-ischemic attack, you know, medical jargon, but that's not going to mean anything to the jury or it'll, it'll, it won't connect with the jury. So instead, when we talk about stroke and opening, we try to associate the concepts with everyday concepts that the jury will understand. So for example, if a patient has a clot in their brain or a blood vessel in their brain, there are two ways to treat it. One way is a chemical called TPA. Well, that's like liquid Drano. So I'll put up a bottle of liquid Drano in front of the jury and say, this is a clot buster. Just like you're trying to clear a clot out of your pipe in your bathroom, TPA is what doctors, it's sort of like Drano for doctors to put into the blood vessels to try to dissolve the clot and restore blood flow, just like you're trying to restore the flow of water in your, in your sink. But sometimes the clot won't dissolve. It's either too big or it's in the wrong location. So you got to go in with a snake, a little device, and it's a procedure called a thrombectomy, and it's a device that they feed up into the blood vessel to snatch this clot. It's just like the snake that the plumber will use in your bathroom to pull out pull out the clot of, of hair and whatever that's blocking up your sink pipe. So opening, you have to teach the medicine. You have to teach it in a way that's accessible with everyday common experiences. And the more medical malpractice, and I've been doing medical malpractice now for over, almost exclusively for almost 10 years, my big takeaway from doing medical malpractice is that the medicine makes sense. You know, the heart is a pump. Well, people understand what a pump is. Blood is carried around through little blood vessels, arteries, veins. It's accessible. The information and the knowledge the doctors like to dress it up with a bunch of fancy terms, and that's how it's taught to medical professionals. But our job as the advocate is to teach it in a way that's accessible to people. So that teaching piece is very important in opening statements. So you have to teach the medicine in a way that the jury be like, okay, that makes sense. I understand. Once you teach the medicine, then they can understand 
the story of the case and they can see where the failures are, where the system failures and the standard of care violations took place. And then once you finish up with explaining the story of the case, what happened, then you explain to the jury, well, why are we suing? You know, why did we bring this lawsuit? We brought this lawsuit because the doctor did not give TPA clotbuster within four and a half hours, which is the standard of care. And the doctor violated the standard of care. That's why we brought this lawsuit. So it's real clear to the jury why you're bringing this suit. And then the next part of opening statement is to try and defang the defendant's positions, the defenses in the case. We do this in a number of different ways, but we know by the time we show up in trial what the defense arguments are going to be, what their three strong points are. Well, I want the jury to hear those points from me first. I want the jury to understand what the defense arguments are going to be so I have a chance to address them in my opening so the jury's not hearing it for the first time through the defense. So I talk about what the defense points are and what the evidence will reveal. And then I end the opening statement talking about the damages, the human damages, pain and suffering, how my client has been affected by whatever negligence is involved in the case. And that generally concludes my opening statement. I tell the jury a little bit about what's going to happen at trial. You're going to hear from a certain number of witnesses. You are going to have documents. You're going to have medical records. And then at the end of the trial, I'm going to have a chance to come back and talk to you in what we call closing argument or summation. And it's a chance for us to discuss what the evidence has been in this trial and what it's going to take to have a fair and just outcome. And I'll typically tell the jury that I'm going to ask for a certain amount of money because that's what the evidence will will demand in this case. Then I sit down. Defense does their opening statement. Most of them strike very similar themes with each other. They talk about you know, there are two sides to every story, and just because somebody files a lawsuit doesn't mean there's negligence, and, and can you be you know, withhold judgment until the case is over, that kind of thing. Once we finish opening statements, we roll into the evidence. Plaintiff goes first. We have the burden of proof, so we put on witnesses. Oftentimes, we'll call the doctor as our first witness, or one of our first witnesses. We call the doctor for purposes of cross-examination, the defendant doctor, and that gives us the ability to ask questions of the doctor and cross-examine in a cross-examination format, which just means asking leading questions. You know, you went to this, this medical school. Is that true? For example, that's a leading question. And we put on the rest of our evidence. We put on our other witnesses. We'll call the medical expert witnesses who are required to testify about the standard of care. We'll call family members. I'll call my client at some point in the trial, typically further into the evidence, not the first witness, not the last witness, but closer to the end of the case. And we'll call damages witnesses. It could be a lengthy process because as we call each witness and do a direct examination, the defense obviously has an opportunity for a cross-examination. And that cross-examination can last 15 minutes or it can last a day and a half. I've seen a cross-examination last up to two days on a case years ago. So that's the process. And 
it's a challenge to keep the jury engaged through all this. So we're constantly checking in with the jury during the trial. I'll have people in the courtroom who work for me spread out in the audience so that they can look at the jury and see when they're taking notes, which points are connecting, which jurors are sleeping. And sometimes that happens, particularly after lunch. If there's a a video deposition that's being played, that can happen. We pay very close attention to the jury because other than my client, those are the people that matter the most in the courtroom because they're the ones who have the power to make the defendants be accountable for their negligence. Nobody else can make the defendants be accountable except this, this jury. Very powerful position. Once the evidence is done, the next phase are closing arguments. Again, that's going to be a topic of uh, a future podcast. We're going to talk about some specific closing arguments and what goes into them. But generally speaking, a closing argument, whereas the opening statement is the story of the case, the what happened, the closing argument is the story of the trial. Uh, What have we learned in this trial? Um, I was taught that concept by another trial consultant, Marjorie Russell, who's wonderful um, out of Michigan. And Marjorie made that point that really what closing argument is, is the story of the trial. What have we learned in this case? What have we learned from the evidence? Because that's what the jury is going to be required to use to reach a verdict. They're required to consider the evidence and the implications of the evidence, but not just the words on paper or the words out of a witness's mouth. They're required to consider the means of testifying, the manner of testifying of witnesses. A lot of times, I would even say always, jurors are required to resolve disputes among witnesses. One witness says X, another one says Y. Who's telling the truth? Or maybe they both think they're telling the truth, but which version is the most credible? And jurors are called upon to make those decisions in these very important, significant medical malpractice cases. So a trial is more of a a siege than an ambush. It takes a lot of preparation for the trial lawyer involved. It takes stamina. A jury trial is is a a test of your body because you are not you're you're not getting the sleep you need. You're not eating as well as you should. Uh, you're working in a very intense environment with high adrenaline, a high level of attention and alertness. A trial lawyer who practices down in Florida was in Vietnam. He was an infantry infantryman in Vietnam, and. He became a trial lawyer after went to law school after the war and became a very accomplished trial lawyer. And he, I heard him at a seminar one time talking, and he said that next to being in combat, a jury trial is the closest experience to that event that he can imagine. The level of alertness and conflict and attention is just critical to survival. Of course, you know Vietnam, it was literal survival in that setting, but in a courtroom, it's the survival of your case. It's, if you are going to win, you have got to bring the skills, the preparation, the intelligence, the experience to be successful. And that those are the elements to, to be successful at trial. And the reward is seeing the jury come out of, from deliberations, announcing that they have a verdict the judge instructing the jury foreperson to read the verdict and the jury foreperson to read what they, to stand up, hold the verdict 
and with a strong, clear voice, say, we, the jury, find in favor of the plaintiff. And there's no more beautiful sentence in the English language that I can think of. The moment you hear, we, the jury, find for the plaintiff, there's just this enormous relief that just floods your body and you, your, your legs go wobbly and just reflexively you turn to your client and you just want to put your arms around them and hug them and their tears. A lot of times um, there's just a rush of emotions and, and just validation. We've had jury verdicts with significant dollar amounts where the client will be taken care of for the rest of their life. But almost without exception, the client's reaction is they, they listened. The jury heard me and the jury got it and they understand. And it's that sense of validation that impacts plaintiffs much more than the dollars. The dollars are important, of course, because that's what pays for medicine. That's what pays for wheelchair access to their home. That's what replaces lost income. But what matters most to clients is being heard and holding the doctor, the hospital, whoever it might be, accountable. And that sense of closure is just irreplaceable. And I've just seen it time and time again. It allows my clients to to put the pieces of their life back together, even in knowing that they're facing this long road of disability and pain. But knowing that a jury has heard them and believed them and reached a verdict in their favor, there's just nothing more beautiful of an experience. When I decided to put together this podcast and focus on the issue of medical malpractice, I started off talking about how medical malpractice is the third leading cause of death in America, the equivalent of two jumbo jets full of passengers crashing every day of the year. That many people die from medical malpractice, according to a Johns Hopkins physician who performed a study on this issue. It's a problem in America. It's a a terrible problem. And as I'm broadcasting this podcast today, we're gripped in a pandemic of coronavirus. And we talk about trying to flatten the curve to try to reduce the number of people affected by coronavirus, infected by, I should say. We're trying to do the same thing in medical malpractice, and I'm hoping this podcast can make a contribution in that direction. Just like we're trying to flatten the curve of new coronavirus infections, we're also trying to flatten the curve of medical malpractice in America and to push medical malpractice from its third spot down to 10 or 15 or 20 or even lower. The goal of my practice is to obviously represent victims of malpractice and and get them the compensation they deserve and hold wrongdoers accountable. The bigger goal, though, is to educate the public as to what malpractice is and to try and tell some of the stories of these cases so that people listening to this podcast, uh, future patients, maybe some doctors, maybe some defense lawyers will have a better understanding of malpractice and hopefully take the steps necessary to reduce it as the third leading cause of death. 
I'm also aware that everybody at some point is going to be either a patient or they're going to be with a patient at a hospital. We're all going to interact with the healthcare system in some way. And when we do, that is when we are at our most vulnerable. We may be interacting with the healthcare system with our clothes off, sitting up on an exam table with nothing but a thin gown stretched across our front side. We are vulnerable to the experts, the people who are educated and trained to take care of us. And we're not asking for heroics from our healthcare professionals, although we'd certainly like that. And we hope we receive heroics if we're a patient, but we're asking for basic competence. We are demanding basic competence from our healthcare professionals. We are demanding that they put the care of patients above the desire for profits that they put the patient's interest first. We all deserve that. Every American, I would say every human being deserves that basic level of care. But sometimes people are people. Human beings make mistakes. Human beings make bad choices. It's just the the fact of life. And on those occasions, it is necessary to talk with a lawyer and to find out if there's been malpractice and to find out what the options are. So lawyers are a check and balance to the healthcare profession. I was talking to a doctor recently in a deposition, actually, who, along with his wife, were strong advocates for eliminating our jury system. And the attitude was, well, juries just aren't smart enough and knowledgeable enough to really judge doctors. We should have a system where panels of doctors decide if there's been malpractice, where panels of doctors decide if there was negligence that led to an injury. Well, that's a system that exists in some parts, most parts of the world, actually. But in the United States, we trust our citizens to make decisions on these issues of fault, on these issues of negligence. The people in our community are highly intelligent. They're motivated to do the right thing. Our system is set up for where where Juries are the ones who make these decisions. Juries are the ones who decide if there's been malpractice. And juries, most importantly, are the ones to decide what the damages are. That's the world we live in. And I feel very honored and frankly blessed to be in a profession that can directly help people in making meaningful impact in their lives and help them put the pieces back together. I've talked in this episode about how to win a trial. There is one sort of principle that guides me. If I am going to trial, I am going to do everything within my power and within the bounds of the law and ethics to win that trial. Trials are an expensive, taxing experience for everybody involved. And the lessons that I've talked about in this this podcast today, the importance of preparation, the importance of doing the hard work to understand the case, to discover the story of the case, identify the moral core of the case, and then to bring all that in front of the jury in the courtroom is how we serve our clients. And how we best serve our clients is by winning their cases. Now, I'm not naive. Every case doesn't always turn out the way it should. All I promise my clients from the get-go is I don't guarantee results, but I guarantee effort. And you will get my best effort, my team's best effort in your case. I am really proud of our civil justice system. 
I'm proud to live in a country where we have the right to take the powerful, the connected, the wealthy to trial and have normal, everyday citizens decide these issues. Hospitals have a lot of power. They are major corporations, public corporations, many of them, vast amounts of resources. And it is an amazing thing, if you really think about it, that a patient, a a single patient coming into that healthcare system, into the big hospital, if that patient doesn't receive the care, the attention that they deserve and that the law requires, that one patient, it could be an elderly person from rural Georgia, wherever it might be, but that one patient has the right to file a lawsuit and to hold accountable the hospital and the hospital professionals who don't do their job. That is a lot of power that is placed in the hands of a jury. That is a lot of trust that's placed in the hands of a jury. Juries have that power to enforce the rules. Now, I've heard people say, well, let's let's do away with juries. Let's just have the government in, enforce the rules. And if somebody isn't treated right, then the government should get involved and hold the doctor accountable. Or a doctor's organization, a doctor's group should hold the doctor accountable. Well, as my mother used to say, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. And that is just naive to think that the government or even these doctors groups have the motivation, the resources, or even the interest of holding every healthcare professional accountable that doesn't do their job correctly. Juries do that. We look to juries to make those decisions. And the jury is like the guardrails of our society. When people don't follow the rules and people hurt people, juries are the ones that establish the conduct in the community. It's been said many times that juries are the conscience of the community. They are the ones who decide what our community standards are with respect to health care, whether the conduct of a doctor will be allowed or not allowed. This is the role of the jury, and it's a very powerful role that's unique in the world. And I'm proud to be a part of that system. I believe in the jury system. I believe in the wisdom of juries, the compassion of juries, and ultimately the justice that juries deliver. I wish we didn't live in a world where doctors make mistakes or nurses neglect to follow up on a patient that they should follow up on. I wish we didn't live in a world where medical malpractice was the third leading cause of death in this country. But the fact is that we do, and there are a number of reasons that we've talked about in this podcast for why that's the case. Fortunately, we have a civil justice system that allows anybody who has been harmed by medical malpractice to hold the medical care provider accountable in a system that gives every person the right to have their day in court. Face the Jury is produced by Lloyd Bell and Adam Kincaid. Executive producer, Lauren Shankman, and audio engineer, Joel Edwards. I'm your host, Lloyd Bell. Thank you for joining me this season on Face the Jury. I look forward to having you back next season.